0: Welcome back to Climate Frontlines, the podcast about the people, places, and ecosystems on the front lines of the climate crisis. I'm your host, Mike Ludwig, and I've been reporting on the war in Ukraine since Russia's brutal invasion in February. I am horrified by the war, as well as the war in Yemen, which for years has been another destination for weapons made by private military contractors in the United States. But it's difficult to look away from Ukraine, especially after speaking to Ukrainians living through this war. And the conflict is sending shockwaves across the world as prices rise and vital exports of grain, wheat, and other staples are blocked from leaving Ukraine's ports, a problem Ukraine and Russia blame each other for as international negotiators push to reopen shipping lanes in the Black Sea. Last year, Ukrainian grain fed 400 million people around the world, and if the war drags on unabated, the number of people experiencing acute hunger globally is expected to rise by 47 million, according to the United Nations World Food Program, which relies on Ukrainian-grown grain. Climate change compounds this threat to the global food supply by contributing to famines, droughts, heatwaves, and unpredictable weather. The World Food Programme is the world's largest humanitarian aid organization, so I reached out to the group's top climate expert in Munich, Germany, to find out more.
1: So my name is Gernot Laganda. I'm leading the climate and disaster risk reduction programs at the United Nations World Food Programme. And uh, when we look into the issues of climate, uh, climate change, then we look at this through the prism of hunger in the world. And we unfortunately live in a in a day and age where the number of people who are in food crisis or emergencies is really, you know, rising faster than any time before in the 21st century. In, in 2021, 193 million people in 53 countries and territories have experienced high acute food insecurity. Those are 40 million more than in 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Yeah, a toxic mix of conflicts, climate change, economic disruptions is driving these trends. Uh, so, uh, people who have been okay, uh, and you could call them middle class, two years ago, are now in a situation where they depend on external uh, humanitarian assistance. And also, when you look at the the really extreme end of the of the vulnerability spectrum, when people are in famine-like conditions. Um, we have more than half a million people who are at risk of dying of hunger. So when you think that famines are something uh, of the past because you know we, we are, as a, as, a, as a global society, we have never been as wealthy um, and we have really spent unprecedented amounts uh, after COVID and also military spending is, is really big. I mean, at the same time, we see more and more people dying of hunger. And that is now a, a, a perspective that is really difficult to really difficult to address. But you know, in the in, in the World Food Program, of course, we provide humanitarian assistance to over 120 million people every year, um, helping many people who are trapped in these in these um, in this perfect storm between climate conflict, uh, economic disruptions, survive. But at the same time, we of course try to Strengthen resilience so that the next shock that is going to hit is not going to hit as hard. And uh, basically, people have a few um, assets and a few strategies to to rely on so that they do not become dependent
0: on humanitarian assistance. So this is more or less the space in which we work. Gotcha. And and you said that some people who we might consider to be middle class are now facing hunger. What is there an example of a place like that you could give us? And also, what breaks down? You know What changes in a food supply or an economy that causes people who might once be stable to now be facing a, a food shortage?
1: Well, there are certain regions in the world where climate has always been a persistent uh, driver of, of problems for people, especially for people who have rural livelihoods and are dependent on climate-sensitive resources, such as agriculture, so the Sahel Belt, uh, the Horn of Africa. So as a, as a humanitarian agency, we are, we are quite alert and aware about these flashpoints. But then when you look, for example, into Central America, you know Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua, all of a sudden you can see um, a combination of factors where the most active Atlantic hurricane season on record has hit families that were already weakened by years of poor rainfall, economic recessions in the wake of COVID-19. So then basically you have stronger and more frequent climate extremes hitting more vulnerable conditions. And that then creates new hunger hotspots in the world. And there, of course, uh, you can also have internal displacement, people basically losing uh, or or having no capital to fall back on, uh, having to move. Um, we have, of course, then another problem in, in the humanitarian space, which is that there are many countries where we have conflict. Um, South Sudan is an example, northern Nigeria, Afghanistan. And in order to provide humanitarian aid there, you also need, need access and, and you need to, uh, to work on protection of civilians. But very often also there, uh, climate-related issues are, are interrupting or setting back the humanitarian relief. Um, you can have heat waves where all of a sudden, you know, you uh, you you cannot go out uh, because it is uh, it has 50 degrees right now in Pakistan or in India. These heat waves are impacting not only the the crop yields, uh, wiping out harvests. They are also impacting the the labor uh, force and basically agricultural workers cannot go out. You have heat stress in in, in people, in livestock, in crops. So there is apart from that you also have a big big um, drain on the on the energy system because all the, the ventilation and the air conditioning is, is is going on so you have this link also uh, of climate extremes interrupting humanitarian and development progress uh, through through these extreme events
0: And what does the aid look like? Have you worked on the ground in a country that you could share a story about or just tell us what it looks like to deliver aid? I mean, you said that the program provides aid to 120 million people worldwide. What does that look like? I mean, in the United States, we might think, oh, that's (laughs) sacks of flour being dropped from an airplane or something. But I imagine that there's actually a a bit more complicated process to actually helping people access food.
1: Yeah. So. A big part of our work is humanitarian relief after emergencies. You know, to people who are in a potentially life-threatening situation, um, and this can basically take the the shape of distributing food in places where markets have broken down or when markets are not accessible. So when you are in a in a setting uh, where you have um, a civil war or conflict, um, then you need to provide food behind the front lines. And sometimes mm, we yes. do this also th- uh, through airdrops. Other times, you know, uh, some regions are cut off through through flood events. Um, South Sudan is, for example, a country where we have been doing airdrops. So there is really food distribution through a very heavy logistical uh, chain. But then in other places, especially the ones where markets are accessible, we have shifted more and more to cash transfers because this is, does not only have the advantage that it stimulates a local economy and can bring a local economy back on its legs, um, it also gives people a choice on what they spend the cash for and which kind of foodstuffs they, they buy. So a lot of what we uh, provide, especially in places where markets are um, recovering or where they're active, is, is, is cash transfers. And maybe another another aspect here on the on the type of of transfers that we provide cash transfers are a very important element also in displacement settings because often when people get displaced and and they move um they move into into new spaces there is potential for social tensions or conflict with the host population because people think okay um they're drawing on on our local resources um, and it's it's a more of a, a conflictual uh, situation when you provide displaced communities with cash then they spend it in the local economies and then you can also reduce uh, reduce conflict that but makes two, so much sense yeah i mean this is this is the humanitarian part of our work that means basically whenever you have people who do not have access to food either economical access or physical access then we provide that but you know, providing food or cash after things have happened is is actually the last resort that you that you that you should have available because you should uh, work on projects and initiatives that build the resilience of people before they get hit, and equip them with the knowledge, the information, the you know the the tools, the, the seeds, the agricultural inputs, so that they have resilient livelihoods. So that when then a a seasonal dry spell or a drought Uh, rolls around, they can buffer this autonomously and they do not rely on an external aid. The big part of our programs is also in this space.
0: So I imagine that when these markets break down, have you seen markets break? You talk about market breakdown. Have you seen food markets break down? Is it usually because of climate and conflict? Like, for instance, the war in Ukraine, Or can markets just break down because of a heat wave that paralyzes a certain part of a country? I guess I'm being broadly general here, but I'm I'm curious about what that looks like when all of a sudden you just can't go to a market, for instance, and buy food.
1: Yeah, so there is a different... There are different markets, right? There's a global market, Mm -hmm. there are regional ones, national ones, and then local markets. And you can see market breakdowns, you know, very localized. If, for example, a particular district in a a country has been hit by a a flood or a drought, or you have repetitive repetitive droughts, like in, in Madagascar, for example, in the south of Madagascar, uh, the, the food markets have all but, but broken down the local ones you no know? people are really in a very very difficult situation because they, they are so vulnerable that um, really every every little they have used up all their reserves they have no livestock left to sell they've sold all their tools all their assets they have no cash left they have no nothing in storage so no no grain in, in storage all the the grain is eaten so they are now then in a in a situation where they require external assistance so that can that can be a localized breakdown on market but of course when you have a conflict like in yemen or in syria you you have the entire economy uh, uh breakdown and then of course there are you know opportunities for certain regions maybe in that country to still have Local markets and work a little bit more with the principle of self-sufficiency rather than selling surplus to the markets because all the access roads are 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 broken down and you cannot get the the diesel to drive your pumps and you cannot get your fertilizer, but you can still produce locally for your family. So that that may well uh, be possible in in certain um, in certain places. Afghanistan, for example, is is a, is a country where you have. Uh, these local markets, even though at a global, uh, sorry, at a a national uh, level, uh, the food insecurity is very high, because it's also rain-fed agriculture, extremely drought-prone, extremely prone to being hit by these these climate extremes. And, of course, in Afghanistan, as we all know, it's not only a a climate problem. You have a political uh, problem there as well. You have uh, social tensions, conflict uh, high levels of poverty. So it's usually when people go hungry, when markets break down, usually it's a combination of factors, but again, you, it's context specific depends on the, uh, depends on the country we're talking about.
0: Your description of Afghanistan really, um, kind of struck me mostly because after the United States made its final military withdrawal, I talked to so many people, many of them more middle-class or had been in some way employed closer to the US government or NATO or to the former government of Afghanistan. And they were so desperate to get out. Uh, Whether or not they had a connection to the United States, they were very desperate to leave as soon as the US left because with it, the US took a lot of wealth that it had been injecting into the economy. What has been your experience with Afghanistan, especially with the, the heat waves And with the U.S. leaving, how dire is the situation there right now?
1: It's extremely dire. I mean, not only because of the political situation and the human rights situation, but also because of water stress in mostly rain-fed agriculture. Mm -hmm. When you look at uh, how Afghanistan's average temperature has increased, I mean, globally, we have increased by about 1.1 degree centigrade since pre-industrial times, you know, global average surface temperature. In Afghanistan, this is more than that. You know, we are talking right. about 1.8 degrees centigrade. So it's it's really higher than the global average, and rainfall events have become more extreme and unpredictable. Uh, there is really this pattern where you see the rainfall that may have fallen um, over several weeks to months is now coming down in one or two afternoons, washing, washing everything away that has been planted. And as a result, you know you have you have high degrees of erosion. And also, you know when you have drought conditions like you had it last year, um, and we had twenty five out of thirty four provinces facing drought conditions. So around half of Afghanistan's population. Uh, right now are in a food crisis or emergency. And this is largely also a, a climate narrative, not only a, a, a conflict one. Um, and yeah, we when we look at these situations, I think we always look at these different drivers of risk for people, you know, climate extremes being one. But then, of course, there is conflict drivers and then there is economic drivers. And economic drivers have been especially prominent after COVID-19 when you had basically Market blockages and, and 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 inflation, but also now in the wake of Russia's invasion in Ukraine, where now food prices are going up all over the globe, and this is then something that um, these these uh, poor communities in in places like Afghanistan or in the Horn of Africa or in in Sub-Saharan Africa down down in southern Africa, even they they feel you know as much as 9,000 kilometers away, you see uh, food price inflation of around 20 percent. Uh, for important staple crops, um, you see fertilizer prices increase, and this is then basically that that comes all together into that that toxic mix of of drivers of risk that people are experiencing.
0: Right, I I imagine that when there is this toxic mix, or there is a shock to global food markets or to the economic system, it is probably the most vulnerable people in countries like Afghanistan or or like Yemen who are hit first and hardest by a food shortage. I would imagine it kind of works like that, where, you know, things might be okay, but in a vulnerable place, one shock, one pandemic, one war a thousand miles away will hit the most vulnerable first. Is that what you have seen?
1: Yes, that's correct. I mean, the front lines of the climate crisis are really not the places that are well off. You know, those are nice. places that have already started to unravel at this intersection between climate conflict and, and, and skyrocketing inflation. And um when you look a little bit into the projections no and 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 where these hotspots are, then you see that in places like that are already very fragile, in, in South Sudan, in Afghanistan, in Somalia, those are the hotspots where really people are more and more uh, dependent on humanitarian aid, this is this is where basically our operations have to have to support more and more people. And in a in a warming climate, you know, this number is only going to increase. I mean, we we did some modeling uh, a, a while back that if global temperatures keep rising to two degrees centigrade, and this is keep in mind we're already at one point one above pre industrial average, we would have at least an additional one hundred and eighty nine million people. Uh, in food crisis or or worse so in such a future you know you, the world bank has modeled that also 216 million people could become displaced within their own countries by climate shocks and stresses alone so around seven times more than than today and if you turn on the heat uh, to to 4 degrees then the number of hungry people could increase by as many as 1.8 billion people so neither governments nor the international aid system are ready to handle such a future um, and, you know, so so for us, there is, of course, this very important um, advocacy uh, element here to make sure that um, these climate uh, negotiations deliver on ambition. I mean, we cannot go to a future that is warmer than two degrees because we will be, all be at breaking point in the international aid architecture. And, you know, you will see mass. Displacement, you will see mass starvation. You will see destabilization at a scale that we have never experienced yet. So we're really bracing for impact. I think we we still have time to uh, frame some smart, intelligent, strong, and scalable programs right now in the next decade. But then uh, we we really calculate that in in the early '30s we will have blown past that 1.5 degree warming target that is enshrined in the international climate negotiations. So. Um, Time
0: is running out very, very fast. Time is absolutely running out. I want to zero in really quickly on Yemen and Ukraine, because those are two conflicts that we're talking a lot about in the United States, because, our, of course, our government has been involved in those conflicts. In Yemen, there has been a ceasefire. Um, I'm not sure if it's still holding, but it has been hailed as a moment where humanitarian aid has been able to ac- access the country a little bit easier than during times of fighting. Do you have any updates on Yemen or the humanitarian aid work that is going on in Yemen?
1: I would probably relay you to our country office in Yemen.
0: Okay. So I'm, again, you know, I'm the,
1: the focal point for climate and disasters reduction. to gotcha. protection of civilians in, in, in uh, basically conflict affected countries, when it comes to our logistical supply chain. Um, then I think other people are better placed to to answer that question.
0: No, no, no. Of course. And real quickly, as as far as climate and supply chains, can you uh, explain or help us understand how a you know blockade or uh, Russia stealing wheat or grain in Ukraine, how that you know how how that ripples out into the markets and how that affects people. I mean, what does that actually look like? I mean, is it just it just comes down to there was food coming to a a a port in another country. Now it's just not coming and that changes everything in that local area.
1: Yeah, so basically, you know, when we look at this the impacts of the the Russian invasion in Ukraine on the global food markets, then this is nothing that has to do with climate. Yeah there's no there's no climate element here. It's basically scarcity on the market um because the the two countries Russia and, and Ukraine they're really important for global wheat production they're really important for sunflower oil production for a number of staple crops that are that, that not only are important for food importing countries but they're also important for the humanitarian system because we buy these uh, these foodstuffs and then we use them for our humanitarian operations in for example Syria or Yemen So basically when the food prices now go up, then this inflation directly affects the number of people that we can feed. So we had uh, um, the latest number I've seen is that we have a, a monthly additional cost of around $29 million just to feed the same number of people just because of the inflation effect on the food prices and the inflation effect on the energy prices, which are also very important in the in the in the entire picture because in order to distribute food you do not only need to to buy the food you also need to transport it um and basically every so so the the first factor here that i think is important is the prices increase because there is not as much product on the market and then of course you have the the blockages of the of the supply lines no so you cannot if you cannot ship your your grain out via the port of odessa basically then then uh you have to to go uh, all around the the region which costs uh, so much more also when especially when when energy prices are high when basically you you pay much more for it, uh to fill a truck uh, the tank of a truck that is producing food uh, uh transporting food so this is in the in the end you know the two factors that that i think are are really important for for our supply chains i mean it's the the overall prices of the of the food commodities that we need need in our programs, and then the uh, the logistics uh, are becoming more complicated because certain routes that we usually use and that have been very very efficient are now not accessible, and we need to find other means and ways to to get our our trucks uh, to the to the places where people are in
0: need of them. If you enjoyed our interview, please rate this podcast and subscribe on your podcast platform. You can also sign up for our daily newsletter at truthout.org. A big thanks to our producer, Jared Rodriguez, for putting this episode together, and until next time, peace.